If you look at the Industrial Revolution, there was a long process during which the manufacturing of goods became more efficient. And there was a, the market forced an efficient distribution of labor to get things manufactured more efficiently, lower cost, higher quality. And I think it's fair to say that we are going through the Industrial Revolution in legal about 200 years later. I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law. Each week, we'll talk to a mover and shaker from the legal and technology fields. We'll learn a little bit about them, what they've been up to, and hopefully get a couple real-world tips that lawyers can use to integrate technology into their legal practices. This episode was recorded in front of a studio audience of dolls, stuffed animals, and action figures. Seriously. For this episode, I sat down with Kent Zimmerman in his kid's playroom. Kent is a legal consultant that works with legal departments and law firms. I asked him to sit down with me and talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. The impact that alternative legal service providers, aka LPOs, or legal process outsourcing companies, are having on the legal market. Kent also weighs in on law firm mergers. That's a topic he knows a lot about because assisting with law firm mergers takes a big chunk of his time. I've known Kent for a few years now. He and I first met when I was still practicing law, and my old law firm enlisted his services to help with some strategic planning. Then, as now, he was with the Zoighauser Group, a legal consultancy based in Chicago that works with law firms and legal departments. You know, I'm part of Zoighauser Group. We're a boutique consultancy focused exclusively on legal. We work principally with law firms, also with corporate legal departments. Um, and our consulting work is mostly focused on helping uh, with strategy, so developing strategic plans to help uh, organizations develop consensus around what their vision is for the future, developing a granular plan to get there. We also do law firm merger work, so we help firms combine with each other. Um, and then we do a range uh, of marketing strategy, uh, branding, positioning, key client programs, uh, other work related to marketing, and obviously busy market for both of us right now. The cool thing about Kent is that unlike many consultants, this is about team synergy. This is a win-win for the client and the firm. Let's hit this out of the park. A scalable solution to maximize profits. People, don't spin your wheels on this one. Let's create an out-of-the-box solution with customizations, nothing fancy. He has actual real-world legal experience. Actually loved practicing law. I was an IP lawyer at a terrific little boutique called Bowwinkle Partners on LaSalle Street in Chicago. I thought I had like totally gotten to where I always wanted to be and loved it after law school. And then came the dot-com boom, late 90s. Everybody was leaving law firms and traditional companies to go into dot-coms. And I uh, ended up with a couple buddies starting a technology company uh, that we ended up uh, growing and eventually selling to a public company. And it was, you know, at first, really hard decision. And the firm's partner said, you could always come back if it doesn't work out, don't worry. And I took the leap and it ended up being a grand slam, worked out really well, um, and did another company after that. And then um, for the last 10 years or so, have been consulting in legal um, happened by accident at first. A law firm just asked for some help, uh, advice from the client perspective, and has grown organically. And very fortunate to be part of the Zoghauser Group uh, over the past uh, eight nine years now. So you say it came organically. You had a law firm ask you for some help. That was pre Zoghauser, right? It was. It was just after we sold our second business. I was deciding what I wanted to do. Um, and a firm that I had used for some of our transactional work, partner, relationship partner, took me out to lunch, and he said, you know, we would like help growing the strength and size of some of our 
key client relationships. And he, a Chicago-based lawyer, and he said, you know, we work for with McDonald's and we work with Motorola, we work with Walgreens, some of the big Chicago area companies, but we just do a little slice of their work. And it'd be great to get some feedback on how we're doing and where our strengths and weaknesses are in the mind of the client and how we could better strengthen the relationship. And he asked if I would go and have some of those conversations on his behalf. And that was kind of by accident how I ended up starting consulting. Ultimately, Kent's consulting work took off, and he joined forces with Zoighauser in 2008. As Kent alluded to earlier in the program, his work consists of three main areas. Law firm merger work, which we'll get to a little bit later in the podcast, but he also helps law firms and legal departments out with strategic planning and marketing. And so on the strategy, um, we do strategic planning at the firm-wide level, sometimes also at the practice group or industry sector team level, sometimes even at the office level. And strategic planning, the way we approach it, is really about helping partners in the firm get on the same page about what their aspirations are for the firm's future and what they think it's going to take to achieve those aspirations. And ultimately, we help them develop a granular plan step-by-step to help them get to where they want to go as a firm over time. So that's, that's planning. Um, and it's a, you know, obviously a valuable uh, exercise for firms because it helps firms prioritize the use of their time and their money. And they only, every firm only has so much time and so much money. So it helps them prioritize their time and money around doing the things that are mostly likely to move the needle to get them to where they want to go as a firm. Our experience is that all law firms are good candidates um, for that work and benefit from doing it because it, the, the, the strategic plan ends up being a management tool for the leadership of the firm in the sense that it helps them get themselves some guidance on what opportunities are going to help them drive their business in the direction they want to take it. So, you know, firms get presented with opportunities to hire laterals, for example, all the time, or maybe open new offices, or they might get presented with an opportunity to sponsor a conference. And, um, you know, perhaps a firm approaches them wanting to merge or whatever. If you have a strategic plan, and there's a vision about where the partners aspire to take the firm in the future, you could run all those opportunities against the plan that you've agreed on. And then you could say, okay, does sponsoring this conference, does opening in this city, does taking this lateral, does merging with this firm, do the, do the opportunities we're presented with, do they help us accelerate the achievement of the plan we agreed on? Or is it something separate and outside the plan we've agreed on? So in that way, it helps you kind of stay on track and take the firm to wherever you want to take it, rather than getting sidetracked by bright, shiny objects that may appear that may seem interesting, but you know may or may not help you get to where you want to go. Kent and the Zoighauser Group also help law firms out with branding and marketing. Part of our work is in the area uh, of branding and positioning. Another part of our work is in helping firms identify their clients of strategic importance, and we help them grow, strengthen, and grow those relationships. Um, we do that through client feedback, through client team programs, um, and we bring data to bear as well as feedback from clients to help to help firms grow those relationships. As alluded to earlier in the podcast, Kent's bread and butter is assisting law firms with merger work, which, as he points out, is at an all-time high. The process Kent describes is pretty interesting because for most lawyers, the only thing they know about law firm merger starts with an email from the managing partner saying next Thursday there's going to be a firm-wide breakfast meeting. When Thursday rolls around, what you find out at the breakfast meeting is the rumors are true that the law firm is merging with that New York firm, Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. So first of all, the busiest part of my practice by far over the past few years is the merger uh, practice. Um, you know, you may know that the data would suggest we are at an all-time high 
in terms of the number of mergers in legal in 2017 compared to any year since they've been tracked over the past 20 years or so. Um, and that the same is true. We've broken the record several times in the past five years. Number of things driving that consolidation, um, including increasing competition and the need to have strong, deep benches of high-quality lawyers in a firm's area of strengths. Usually, firms acquire those lawyers by hiring them laterally, growing them at home, maybe acquiring a group. But increasingly, more and more firms are willing to put all options on the table and to say, hey, we should consider combinations if they help us build the kind of depth, if they help us accelerate the kind of uh, uh, strength into getting to where we wanted to go as a firm, whether or not we ever merged. So where do we come in? Um, our involvement uh, our involvement differs depending on the firm and its needs and its preferences. In some cases, we come in very early before a firm even decides whether or not it wants to merge. So sometimes we're brought in to help partners come to consensus to get on the same page about whether a combination with another firm would accelerate the achievement of their broader aspirations. And if so, if yes, what the other firm should ideally look like that would be a fit? What would its geographic strengths be? What would its practice area strengths be? How about its industry sector strengths? How about its culture? How about how it compensates its people? How about its capital requirements, et cetera, et cetera? So what is the firm looking for? get on the same page about those things. And so we facilitate that process. And then we often also will take the criteria that a firm has in mind and actually develop a list of firms in the universe of possibilities that fit the criteria. We would present the list to the other firm. We'd help them prioritize the list. And then we often play the role of facilitating uh, a meeting between the firms. We One of the things that we bring to the table is relationships and credibility with a large group of firms, particularly in the US. And so we uh, use our knowledge and our relationships to bring firms together, to posit the case for why they should meet at least a preliminary meeting to discuss a combination. Then we often facilitate those discussions all the way through a term sheet and consummation of the deal. So um, you know, in other cases, a firm already knows what they want. They know that they want to, for example, you know, grow in Northern California, so find us a firm there. Or maybe they're already talking to a firm, and our role is just to help the process along and facilitate the consummation of the combination. So it really depends on what a firm's preferences and interests are. But that, that work is significant for us. Um, right now, I am involved in three combinations that are past the term sheet racing towards the finish line. Uh, all three of those are between firms of size that are in the EMLA 100, 200, or Global 100. Um, and uh, I and others in our group are very uh, focused on that work right now. What's the future merger activity for 2018? I mean, if you had a crystal ball. Uh, my crystal ball says that it's going to continue uh, to be a very active uh, uh, merger market. Consolidation and legal is growing. The data would suggest anecdotally we see that also. And I think that as some of the deals uh, have gotten done and some others that are in the pipeline, as they do get done, I think it's going to cause more and more firms to say, you know what, we really should have all options on the table. If high quality firms are combining to achieve their aspirations, shouldn't we at least consider what our potential is and what our options would be? And so, so I, you know, I think um, our pipeline as well as the data, suggests that it's going to be busy here next year. And then at what point in the future do you think the merger activity will stop? Like, What, what will be the market forces that, that puts the brakes on this? You know, I think um, it's a great question. I, I think to the extent 
that the uh, landscape becomes less competitive in legal, that would slow down uh, the uh, the consolidation. Um, I also think that um, you know clients are the king, really. They're the ones who um, you know are the lifeblood of law firms. They you know pay the lawyer salaries, pay to keep the lights on, pay for the real estate, etc. And so clients are going to have to see value out of the firms with which they do business. And to the extent that they see more value out of firms that have deeper benches in their areas of strength, I think that will help continue uh, consolidation in legal. To the extent, though, that clients don't get value from some of these deals, it could cause some firms to rethink their deals or do other kinds of deals. So I think you know where, where clients see value is going to be very important to, to the future of consolidation in legal. And now we get to the reason everybody came to the show. This is where Kent and I talk about the use and the future of alternative legal service providers. Alternative legal service providers are companies like my own, Percipient, which are companies, not law firms, that assist with work that some may or may not consider as legal-related work. This type of work consists of, say, going through a bazillion documents because you got to respond to a government subpoena or some discovery and litigation. Or it might mean you're going through hundreds of contracts through the due diligence process related to a merger and acquisition. Until about 10 years ago, law firms were doing most of that work. The rise of alternative legal service providers is in no small part due to advances in technology and the ability to leverage technology to analyze and process data. So my sense is that use of LPOs, legal process outsourcers, you know, another umbrella term that I would use that would include LPOs would be alternative providers of legal services, LPOs and other organizations that help law firms provide legal services or provide them on their own. Um, so yeah, my, my sense is that there's a, still a great deal of opportunity in this space. Here's how I look at it. If you look at the Industrial Revolution, there was a long process during which the manufacturing of goods became more efficient. And there was a the market forced an efficient distribution of labor to get things manufactured more efficiently, lower cost, higher quality. And I think it's fair to say that we are going through the Industrial Revolution in legal about 200 years later than manufacturing went through it. But it's a similar process where the market, in this case clients, are driving the more efficient allocation of resources to get legal work done more efficiently, lower cost, higher quality. And you see that starting to happen in a number of areas, particularly areas like discovery, also due diligence in the context of deals, also in the context of second requests and antitrust matters, also in other areas where there's opportunity to more efficiently do the work, either using technology, lower cost people resources, or in other ways, the market is going to drive, in my, in my view, and the data would suggest the market's going to drive more efficient distribution of labor to get it done. And I think something that's helped things along is that since Lehman Brothers fell, the economy went south. Ever since then, there's been this fee pressure, downward fee pressure on law firms. And some thought that that fee pressure would subside as the economy came back and strengthened. What I think caught some people by surprise is that even though the economy is back, certainly if you look at measures like the stock market, the economy is back, the client's never went back to buying legal services the same old way they did before Lehman Brothers. After Lehman Brothers, it's almost like ALB. After Lehman Brothers, there has been a move 
under pressure on the client side who need to spend less on everything, there's been a move by the clients to get their services delivered more efficiently. And so the law firms under this pricing pressure where they could be more profitable is if they don't overspend in getting the work done. So their ability to protect their profits or even increase them has to do with not overspending and getting the legal services done. If they can use LPOs to not overspend, so for example, if they could use lower cost resources and LPOs to do due diligence rather than having a lawyer who makes $160,000 plus a year to do the due diligence, they can make more money on that. Same with other areas of the law. So I think even though LPOs have grown in their size and influence, I think there's a long way to go for legal services to be delivered more efficiently. I asked Kent why law firms would even want to work with LPOs and alternative legal service providers. Because at some level, they're taking work away from the law firms. However, as Kent points out, that might be short-sighted thinking. Listen closely to what he says here. What Kent says is that for law firms to compete in the changing legal market, they should focus on work that commands good rates and focus on getting work that they are uniquely suited to do rather than trying to wring every penny out of a case. He also makes another good point. Do law firms really want to be known as a due diligence law firm or a firm that's really good at looking at documents? Or do they want to be known as a law firm clients can rely on to solve technical and complicated legal problems? The market's very efficient. And to fight the market forces is a fool's errand, in my view. Most of the law firms that have worked with LPOs over the years do so because their clients tell them to. So big company X is using Wall Street law firm Y to do an M&A transaction. And the big company tells the Wall Street firm, we want you to handle the transaction, but we want you we're requiring you actually to work with an LPO to do the due diligence. And the client and the law firm says, sure, because the client told them to. What the law firm is able to do is instead build its capability, quality, and depth in areas where the law firm has a competitive advantage over other law firms and certainly over uh, alternative providers. And so the, the argument would be, do what commands your rates that others can't as easily do and that clients uh, aren't trying to use others for. I think there's also a brand component. The law firm, they don't want to be known for being due diligence experts. They want to be known for advising on deals. And so, um, and so it's an opportunity for the law firm to burnish its brand for what it really wants to be known for, rather than trying to hold on to every last dollar of work that the market says could more efficiently be done elsewhere. A question sometimes comes up about the rise of alternative legal service providers. And the question is, how much of their success is attributable to law firms not listening to what their clients really want? I have a buddy who was in-house counsel for a big logistics firm, and so often I would hear him complain how he just wanted to call his law firms up and get an answer and not a memo. For so long, lawyers have been ingrained and trained to leave no stone unturned. That probably comes straight from the way we're taught at law school. Despite the fact that maybe how we're taught, for all legal matters, is that a good thing? Is it a philosophy and a strategy we should employ? And is it something clients even want? You know, I was in the hallway of an AmLaw 25 firm in Chicago this morning, and you could bet exactly what you said, Chad, is what the partners in that firm say. It's got to be precise, 
perfect, no stone left unturned, etc. Now, I'll tell you something else. On behalf of that AMLA 25 firm, one of the things I do for them is I interview their clients to get feedback about how they're doing. And you want to know what the clients say? The clients frequently say, do not take the no stone unturned approach on every matter you do for me. If the matter requires that, I will tell you. But otherwise, I may instruct you or you may want to find out from me that really we don't need the no stone unturned approach on every single matter. Sometimes it's good enough to take a lighter approach, staff it more leanly, don't write me the 35-page memo. Instead, call me and talk to me for five minutes, and that's enough on a particular task. And so I think, I think part of the disconnect and the opportunity for the alternative providers is that while many law firm partners think no stone unturned is the way you have to do it on every matter, the clients, for most of their matters, good is good enough. You don't need no stone unturned. And for some of those clients, they'll keep using law firms to take that lighter approach. But for others of them, they're going to say, you know what, for some of our matters, whether it's transactions below a certain amount, whether it's disputes that only have so much in controversy, they may say, for some or all of those matters, we can go to a smaller firm, to an alternative provider, perhaps a smaller firm working with an alternative provider. And I think that disconnect on what the correct approach is, or tailoring the approach to the value of the matter is important. You know, I, I would spent some time with the in-house team at GE recently, and they talk about the total cost of matter uh, and are very uh, forward-thinking about how they evaluate value they get from outside firms. And I think that it's important for the client not just to look at the legal fees in a vacuum, not just to compare hourly rates across firms and matters, but instead to look more uh, fulsomely at what's the matter going to cost, not only in legal fees, but also in outcome, settlement, judgment, if, if it goes that far. And so, so my, my take is that law firms need to be aligning what they provide with the value that firms expect, uh, that clients expect, considering what's at stake in the matter. And for some matters, they do need no stone left unturned. But for other matters, they need far less than that. And sometimes they'll get law firms that'll tailor that lighter approach. Other times they use LPOs or a combination of a firm and an LPO. Okay, as Ken has talked about in the last half an hour or so, we know the legal buying landscape is changing. But how does he suggest law firms should adapt to deal with these changes? You know, I think for, for um, most firms, it's important to be up to speed on the landscape, to have relationships with LPOs and other alternative providers to understand where their sweet spots are, how they add value, what their most successful relationships look like. And then with clients to be able to, in an informed way, engage uh, in a uh, in serving them in a way that meets their needs, but in being knowledgeable about all the options to do that. And I think that what clients don't want, in my experience, is a law firm that's just wedded to the old, same old, you know, way of doing things and being unwilling to adapt, being unwilling uh, to innovate, uh, not familiar, you know, with the alternative provider landscape. So I think, I think as a law firm, you know, one of the best things you could do is be up to date on the options, have relationships, and be open to serving clients the way they want to be served. And I think that 
extra points for law firms that actually proactively bring that flexibility up rather than just kind of you know, trying to charge by the hour, do everything the same way they've always done it and hope nobody notices. And that's, I think, what you want to avoid as a law firm. Lastly, Kent and I spent some time discussing the impact technology has on the delivery of legal services. Nowadays, there are three main ways legal work gets accomplished. Number one is how it's always been done via law firms or in-house legal departments. Number two is through the use of alternative legal service providers, like the companies we've been talking about in this episode. And then number three is through the use of technology. As Kent points out, there's been significant advances in legal technology using artificial intelligence and cognitive computing. You know, I think that um, cognitive computing, AI, and other forms of technology have started to develop and are continuing uh, to get used more widely. And I think that area has matured. And I see that area of technology as just one more way for law firms and clients to more efficiently get their work done. It's just one more channel. Um, you know, the, the people from Watson get a lot of attention, partially because it's IBM, partially because they've done a great job of getting the Watson brand out there. You see TV commercials about it now uh, on primetime television. So, you know, they're one player. There's many others also. Um, I'll, you know, briefly tell you an anecdote. There's a team, as you may know, at Watson that's focused on legal. And my group, Zoichauser Group, has a chair roundtable. So we have a roundtable of chairs of law firms uh, that we invite to meet a couple times a year. And at a recent meeting, we had the team from Watson working on legal in to tell us what they were, uh, uh, tell us about the work they were doing. And so they, they started by to kind of introduce the concept of Watson, they said to the chairs in the room, whoever, who, they said, who saw the episode of Jeopardy where Watson won Jeopardy and beat the human contestant? And several hands went up. And then the next question was, so after that episode aired, guess from what industry we started to get phone calls wanting to commercialize Watson? And the answer was medicine. It was doctors who were calling, they said. And so they said, you know, the doctors realize that the way they often uh, start their work with a patient is diagnosis. And to diagnose, doctors usually ask a lot of questions to rule things out. And they started to catch on to the fact that in Jeopardy, Watson's strength was answering questions. And uh, in fact, uh, the people at IBM say that the distinguishing feature of Watson as a piece of technology when it was developed is that it could actually answer a question. It's not a database search. It's not some other kind of, uh, uh, it's, it's really the intelligence to answer a question. And so the people at Watson said that they used Watson at Memorial Sloan Kettering, the cancer hospital in New York, on a pilot basis to help doctors do diagnoses. And then they said, so let's talk about how Watson can be used in legal. And they, they said, imagine that you're a lawyer in a law firm and you've got a client who calls and says, we just bought an office building and we want your help as the law firm leasing up the office building. So we need you to develop a base lease for us. They said, the way that would traditionally work today is that the relationship partner gets the call finds out what the business terms are, finds out the address of the building, finds out maybe the use, uh, likely use that the tenants would have for the space. And then they would turn that information over to associates or maybe associates and paralegals. And those 
junior people would cobble something together based on prior work products, similar base leases the firm had developed before. And they might do a little legal research on Westlaw or Lexis and figure out if there's local regulatory uh, uh, aspects need to be worked into the lease. And they uh, might put some other custom things in there. And then that would take a few days or a week. And then the junior team would deliver work product that was maybe 70 or 80% done to the relationship partner. That relationship partner, the senior person, would take it the rest of the 20% or whatever way over the goal line and then deliver the work product to the client. And that would be done by the hour. It would be done using the traditional leverage model in law firms. And the quality would be as good as the quality that the junior team found based on prior work product that they came up with and cobbled together uh, based on the quality of their legal research using Westlaw and Lexis and so forth. He said, with Watson, and this is the punchline, the way that would all work is that the relationship partner would get the call to find, to do the base lease. The relationship partner would turn to Watson, which had been educated on all of the firm's work product. Everything that's in Lexis and Westlaw would have already been poured into Watson. As much knowledge as possible from the lawyer's heads would have been poured into Watson. And so the relationship attorney would just say, we need a base lease. Here's the address. Here's the business terms, and boom, 10 seconds later, Watson would spit out the 80% work product, eliminating what the associates and paralegals had done. Think about if, that's, if that promise can be realized, or even half of it could be realized, imagine the impact on law firms. You're not billing by the hour anymore. You wouldn't want to do that. You're billing for value, perhaps. You're... Leverage model changes so those junior people can be doing more interesting work that the firms could charge more. Um, and your quality may go up uh, to the extent uh, that the technology helps you build in uh, 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 better quality into what you deliver to clients. And so if you multiply that times all the things that law firms do with base leases as just an example, if only a small portion of that happens, that could really change things for law firms. And so... I mentioned Watson as an example, but think of all the technology out there, all of the alternative providers of legal services out there. And so you take all of this innovation and ways to get legal work done that didn't used to exist, and then you think about how that changes the game for law firms and their strategies and how they build leverage, how they price, how they are going to be forced to deliver higher quality to stay competitive. And you realize that there's really a wave of change washing over legal. And that wave hasn't even crested yet. It's a big wave. It's a lot of change. And there's huge opportunity for innovation on the part of alternative providers, on the part of law firms. And ultimately, my view is that the clients, as much as anybody, will benefit from all that change. Well, that's the show. We hope you liked it. If you want to get a hold of Kent, you can email him at Zimmerman at consultzg.com. That's Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N-N at consultzg.com. I'll also throw his contact information up on the website, which is tlpodcast.com. If you want to subscribe to Technically Legal, you can do so by checking us out on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and other major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. In the next episode, we talk to Associate General Counsel at Microsoft, Dennis Garcia. He talks about some cool stuff that they're doing over there at Microsoft in the legal department to streamline their work. He also talks about the use of bots and lawyers' use of the cloud. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.